and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the Rocks! With Katie and Allie. So normally, it would just be the two of us, and we'd be having some drinks and talking about famous women in history, but we are bringing you a very special episode tonight. We are talking to an author who is writing about Herstory. <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today, Victoria DeGrazia. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, listeners. <laughs> well, we are so happy to have you. Victoria is a professor of history at Columbia University and author, was the director of Columbia's Institute for Research on Women and Gender, is a dual citizen, a leading authority in the knowledge on fascist Italy, and is just an incredible academic, like yeah. unbelievable. I'm blown away. <laughs> blown away. And uh, we have invited her on our show today to talk about her book, The Perfect Fascist, a story of love, power, and morality in Mussolini's Italy. So hi, Victoria. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello to you. So I am a professor of history, European history. I grew up in the United States, and then I married an Italian, had a child in Italy who's Italian and American. But before that, I had developed this huge passion and desire to flee from 1960s United States. Uh, and that passion involved Italy, beautiful Italy, very difficult Italy, exciting Italy, and Italian culture and politics. And people have had a huge influence on how I uh, developed as an historian, coming and going from the United States, comparing the United States to, uh, to, to, to Europe, and thinking a lot about what, to me, in the 1960s, when I... <laughs> ages ago, grandparent time, uh, thought was the worst thing that could befall a country, which was fascism. Fascism, which I understood then, a dictatorship, which uh, did confronted the fact that liberalism had failed uh, to satisfy the needs and wants of large parts of the population. Fascism was a movement, a powerful leader, which played the nationalist card, which said, if we don't get mobilized and militarized and start fighting men, first and foremost, with the women behind them and the kids in the future, uh, Italy or other countries will fail in this Darwinian struggle of all against all. And so in the first fascist, Mussolini, his movement is called fascist. We can come back to why it's called fascist, which means like a, a bundle uh, coming out of Roman times, symbolizes the people and their sovereignty. In any case, Mussolini was the first fascist coming to power by a coup in 1922. And his basic line was the enemies of Italy, meaning <clears throat> first and foremost, socialists, Reds, Bolsheviks, uh, all these fiends, uh, red fiends, but even white fiends, Catholics, too, uh, were weighing Italy down, and he would mobilize to make Italy great again, like it had been in Rome, <laughs> under mm -hmm. Roman times. That was the reference point, as if Rome were 10 years away or 100 years away, very nearby. So the first fascism, then, is this idea of a mass movement, which will bring in the people, and we'll get rid of fragmentary liberalism, which only cares is selfish and capitalistic and gives up on the nation and 
it, he would keep everybody mobilized, get rid of enemies of all kinds to make uh, Italy great. And that's what he did for 20 years until uh, entered into a war that was too big for Italy's britches, so to speak, <laughs> outside of also his capacity to command World War II, which led Italy and, and Europe too to rack and ruin and got rid of him uh, eventually in 1943. So to come back, how he sort of entered into our <laughs> who am I? Well, so I began as a First in the 60s, I had to figure out this fascism. That was the most important thing. I saw fascists everywhere in the 1960s. You know, fascists, my father, fascists, the piggy policemen who picked up my brothers, fascists were my conservative teachers, and so on and so forth. Yeah, fascists, everybody involved in the war in Vietnam. So that was my sort of first passion. Now, as a historian, <clears throat> I don't work that way, and I'm very tempered in who now I call fascists, but that became a kind of an abiding interest, not just because the fascists themselves, but hey, I'm a woman. I was pretty tough uh, until I realized I was small, and so I had to kind of watch it you know, <laughs> in you know, radical politics, which you know was pretty pretty brutal stuff. But really about power, very interested in power. And so, if you want, fascism was a form of pure power or an attempt to be pure power. And you know, I've continued wanting to understand power, how power works in history departments, how it works in American politics, how it works in uh, global politics. And, and so that's been what I've continued to work on. Fascism first, and then other kinds of politics. And that's how I got to this latest book, which we'll be talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Like, what a journey. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I mean, your latest book is incredible and we made a cocktail for it and we'd love to do some physical descriptions for it. So let us tell you about the cocktail, which we actually found pieces of it online and then changed it. So the original cocktail is called the Mussolini and then we changed around the ingredients to make it for your book the perfect fascist. So you want to give us the ingredients? Sure. Um, so it is two ounces of specifically Italian red wine. Um, it's an ounce of orange juice, an ounce of amaretto, an ounce of limoncello, and then a fourth of an ounce of Campari. And then you just shake the whole thing up and then you can serve it on the rocks or in without a ice or in a cup glass. <laughs> um, and then you just garnish with a little piece of orange um, zest. So cheers Whoa, to you and your book. Well, cheers <laughs> to you. Find a little watered down. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and down with them. Here's to us. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, here's <laughs> to us. <laughs> All right. So in your book, it's a really interesting book because it's kind of a love story. It's a political story, but there are some really interesting characters that we meet. And one of the things we like to do on our show, um, because our listeners could be doing any number of things, they're jogging, they're driving, but they can't look at their phones or whatever, or the beautiful pictures in your book to see what these people look like. So can you give us a little physical description and maybe just an attribute description of our two kind of main characters? Yes, yeah, so the perfect fascist, we'll come back to why he's a perfect fascist, decides to marry the perfect wife. And the perfect wife that the perfect fascist chooses happens to be a rather buxom, <laughs> five foot eight, American, New York City, young, Jewish, brilliant diva, an opera singer, okay, who's a Wagnerian type opera singer, a big woman. 
with a beautiful, beautiful voice. So imagine Liliana appearing in the Galleria of Milan. Galleria is where you see the Armani stores today and Valentino and Prada and all the, you know, the great brands. And you would have seen an American woman in 1920 and everybody would have been looking at her because she had big <laughs> spurs around her and she was with her big mother and they created a lot of space around them. These were impressive people, very intelligent women, okay? Emancipated, career-driven opera singer. She was going to met to debut. And along comes Mr. Teruzzi. But Mr. Teruzzi was no longer the good soldier he had been, you know, coming from the lower middle classes of Milan. He had, by 1922, become a big fascist. That is, come home from the war, depressed, veteran, nobody respected him, nobody respected his uniform. They denounced him because they hated the war, lots of people, which is very unpleasant if you've been a veteran and been wounded and gotten silver stars and so on in, in, in battle. And we know that, how terrible it is for a veteran to be disrespected by people who are anti-war. In any case, there he was. Uh, he uh, saw her. <laughs> and, you know, by, after the march on Rome and Mussolini comes to power, you know, what do these guys do? They can't settle down easily. Uh, he's by then 40 years old. Soldiers tend to postpone marriage because they're at war. And uh, Mussolini wants him to settle down. And he looks around and he is smitten by this woman who clearly occupies a lot of space. And above all, in her behavior, seems to be not attached to men, other men. He's a very jealous kind of guy. He himself, what does he look like? He's smaller, so he's probably shorter than she is, five six. For Italians, was pretty good. He looks bigger because he's straight, looks great in a uniform, a big beard. So, which Italians sometimes say it's his red beard. He had blue eyes too, Milanese, mm. and therefore he was very attractive. Now, if you saw him, you might say, "Oh my goodness me!" But <laughs> You know, at the time, he looked like a good catch. And since he was surrounded by people who <clears throat> respected him, why wouldn't they respect him? He's a fascist <laughs> and a big fascist in this small space in the center of town where they kept encountering each other. And she was a big woman who looked wealthy, was American, was, some people thought, a singer, but she's not you know, in the... In the Tarky sits, you know, oh, you know, she's a part of uh, uh, that world. Uh, and then he finds out she's not. Well, she's going to be a big trophy if he can catch her. And she initially is uh, repulsed by him in the sense that you know, not, no, no part. So sort of the, fir the first part of the story is why he wants her, but then why she wants him. And so we're following his career as he rises and becomes <clears throat> more and more attractive because he's a, becomes from being a fascist squadrista beating people up. He becomes a statesman wearing a three-piece suit when he's at home and wearing tucks and tails when he's in Rome and doing you know, all these ceremony activities. And she is becoming more and more on the stage and seems to be about to make her coup to become, you know, a major opera singer and return to the Met. So we're at the point where she's trying to make a coup to go back to the Met, and he's trying to make a coup by conquering her. So there's some drama in this first part of the book. Yeah. <laughs> who's gonna, who's gonna make the right the coup, and what's gonna happen after it? Coup, 
mind you, mean, you know, coup de foudre, excitement, but also coup d'etat with a lot of violence. And the mm-hmm. violence always in this book, you know, it's not, you know, talk about me too, but there's violence everywhere you know, in male-female relations. But, you know, the, the, the fascists are, you know, uh, you know ex- beating people up, killing some important figures, driving people into exile all the time that this is, that's like the background for this affiancement, which takes place finally in 1926. Yeah, I just, I was so fascinated that I felt like this story was almost like weaving its way through a soap opera. It's like this love story that turns into just like this turmoil and then this breakup that you can't break up, but you're separated. And then he's dating someone else. And I was like, I need this on television. I love yeah. it. <laughs> That's what it's hard to sound. Like. This sounds like Netflix. So yeah. if you have any ideas about how to get it, <laughs> I'm open and willing. We've been talking about that. Yeah. Well, that's what was so shocking to me is like this book is so rich and there's so much involved in their lives. And then I looked um, him up on Wikipedia and his page is like this big. <laughs> right. It's a little teeny, teeny page. It'll yeah. change in the next yeah. couple of years. I'm Hopefully, afraid. but from this book. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you said, I think it said, um, I was wa- listening for to like a couple other lectures you did on YouTube and I was like researching you. And one of the things that you said about this book was that you had to research using photographs to to figure out these people's lives because yeah you know they're wikipedia pages yeah. not they're that small. real historians use wikipedia yeah. but you know yeah. what i mean it's oh, like no, there's it's not true. a lot of public knowledge no no it's true but even in history books you know there there a figure like that like him he was very high he was always present you see him in the photographs it's a little like when you study the Politburo in the Soviet Union mm. you know where you don't have a lot of information and then people get removed and they get erased He's like that. He figures in that way. That at the end of the regime, he's caught with his hand in a lot of places. It shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, uh, you know, that gives a sense of repulsion, even amongst fascists, much less mm-hmm. than anti-fascists. So he tended to get buried, also because he didn't have a wife to protect him. Families protect you, mm-hmm. and you know, if there's a trial in Italy of fascists, their women were right by by their side because if they got their stuff confiscated, family makes a big deal in, in protecting, hires lawyers, it goes around pleading and crying, saying, what about the children? And you know, judges, even if they're supposed to be purging these people, they, they respond. I mean, there, there's some response and the law protects to some degree the family. And this went lacking in his case because right. the way he dealt with his <clears throat> affairs, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> so it was his decision to marry this American diva on his way to becoming the perfect fascist? Because I am curious, you know, you use this term a lot, and what exactly was a perfect fascist, especially in Mussolini's eyes? Well, that's always changing, and that's yeah. very hard for this man. He, he was a dutiful man. He was a dutiful soldier, and that means a lot. This is a man who would take a bullet for his comrades, and he did. Uh, I mean, that we know. And he would take a bullet any day for his general, and he would have taken one any moment for Mussolini, especially in 1925-26, when there were several assassination attempts, and that's Mm -hmm. what 
he is, you know, part of his distress and he's coming and confiding to her. And there is a sense that she will settle him down. He's getting in trouble. He gets a woman pregnant. He's being forced to spy, be this and be that because he's pulled in all directions. So how do you stop being pulled in all directions? If you're a weak man with a lot of responsibility, marry a big woman who says, I know that you're pure. I know that you want to be a moral man and I'm going to make you a moral man. I mean, that's kind of a locus classicus that goes way back. (laughs) I'm going to make you the good man that you want to be. And so it's like a marriage made in heaven. It seems to both of them. She's ambitious. She's moral in a kind of moralistic American way. You know, don't, you know, don't cheat. Don't, who, what do you mean you're hanging out with those guys? They're going to get you in trouble. And Wusili wants you to be good. And she, you know, when you act this way, your, you know, your, your tie should be tied this way. And so on. everything is kind of grooming because these fascists were pretty rough guys. Mm-hmm. So somebody had to tell them how to dress and how to behave in public and who to talk to and so on and so forth. So it seemed like a perfect marriage, her money, uh, his career. uh, He was army man. She was a diva, but not supposed to be on the stage anymore. Uh, They would have children uh, and Mussolini loved him. It seemed and was happy that he was settling down with her. And so it seemed like a very perfect marriage she got a dispensation to marry in the church, which was, and not relinquish her religion. So it seemed very good. Now, this is 1926. Uh, remember, Hitler comes to power in 1933. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's coming. It's always on the horizon. 36, <laughs> we're coming way, you know, we're, we're early. So mm-hmm. he married this Jewish woman. It didn't seem to be a big deal. Nobody made a big deal except for his mother. He said, oh, you know, he was an old farm woman and, and you know, and, and very Catholic. And she said, oh, you know, I want my son to marry a Christian and what will happen to the children, which is, you know, what mothers do in mixed marriages. Oh, yeah. I oh, did. Yeah. I did feel like. You don't have to be an anti-Semitic. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's anti-Jewish. Yes. Right, right. I did feel like I was watching an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond at a point because like the mother-in-law comes in and she's treating him like a child and the wife is like, oh, like Liliana's like, get out of here. Like he is not a baby. And I also, I also felt like it was a, it was such an interesting story because at some point it seems like this big woman in Liliana had the wind knocked out of her sails. And I don't know, like, is it him? Is it the fact that you have, you know, Nazi Germany starting to like spread their rule across Europe? It's like, it seems like it's such a combination for this powerful, artistic, beautiful, talented woman to just like wither. What do you think about that? Well, you know, this is woman who, I mean, she was only child. She Cats meow. Who would have ever thought anything would happen to Liliana? And nobody, she would never have. But she goes back to the United States in 1929 when they finished their tour of duty in Sarah, in, in Libya, what's present day Libya, Benghazi, after that, which had been good, but you know, it was hard too. And he is appointed to be the commander of the black shirts, a force of 350,000 men. And he weeps when he's appointed because he means he's going to not be able to be in little cute Benghazi. It was a beautiful little town which was dominated by the Italians where, you know, little, and with his wife and so on. All of a sudden, Mussolini's commander 
He's at the head of 350,000 men. And his men begin to act like Iago in Otello. You know, mm-hmm. They're jealous of her. They're jealous of him. So rumors, where is she? What's she doing? And you can imagine the maids, especially in Italy, why she should be by her husband. What's she doing there? Maybe, maybe she has a lover, maybe this, maybe that. And pretty soon uh, you're getting to full-scale conspiracy. And he's an Italian man, military guy. He couldn't really ever figure out this big woman. Uh, comes from a totally different culture emancipated, high-handed, said terrible things. She would, you know, be very dismissive of people. She was herself. And all of a sudden he sees, oh my God, I'm like the garrison commander and I've got this broad. I mean, yes, you know, these people. And then 1929, folks, it's almost Wall Street crash time. American capitalism, Jewish finance, U.S., libertines, blah, 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 blah. She's not Catholic when they just made an accord with the papacy to make Italy a Catholic state. You know, so things, lots happens in 29. And in that moment, da-da, purloin letters, which suggests that, you know, scarlet letter, that she had done something before she was married. And boom, he lays down the law as if he were Mussolini. He says, no. Marriage is over. So this woman who's sitting in the hotel in New York City waiting for him. I mean, I, my, I, when I read these telegrams, I, my jaw dropped. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> oh, she's never had anything like that ever happen to her in her 28, 29 years of life. And you know, then she goes back to find that the world's changed. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting in our readers, let's say, is <laughs> that she is not going to say, all right, I'm go home and get a divorce and a quickie divorce in Nevada, or you can also go get a quickie divorce in Hungary in those days, mm-hmm. uh, or I think also in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fight it. And that, you, I think readers, I'm not sure how you felt. Why did she fight it? You know, wouldn't you just say, God, me too, this is a cad, you know, uh, which of course her father <laughs> At least just a can. Nope, she's going to fight it. She's going to fight it. So the story, the next 18 years, she's fighting it, folks, which is going to take us beyond fascism to 1947, way ahead of our story. It's it's an amazing story. Yeah. Well, and I love in the end, too, where, like, you know, she never gives up. And then, like... Don't give too much away. Oh, yeah. I can't give too much away. (laughs) (laughs) I did. Yeah. Enjoy. You know, you, I probably know more intuitively what a good marriage is or a good coupledom, whatever it is. Right. Yes. What a bad one is. So, this is the historical marriage from hell. I mean, you have yes. to go to <laughs> Shakespeare or, you know, to Grand Opera to get right. things that are more dramatic and more play out. Oh yeah, this yeah. is not a comedy or a tragedy. It's no, just it's, a mess. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and any marriage that involves Mussolini is probably a bad idea. But. <laughs> That's exactly. Yes, uh, the uh, he himself. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the models are especially these men. You know, they go with the times. So yeah. they had their first round of steady wives and children with 
you know, some organized lovers on the side, mm-hmm. a little bit of this is and that's. And then, you know, after 20 years, they head toward the younger ones, the next generation. So, mm. you know, they, from which they're not expecting to have children. Uh, you know, so, so it's, it's an interesting what, how these men who were in power a long time, they change. I mean, they're always mm. the same in some ways. They're always themselves. Yeah. But the circumstances changes. So, you know, where they were very young when they come to power, Mussolini, I think, was the youngest prime minister ever in Europe. You know, when he came in to power, he was 39 years old. And then by the end of the 1930s, hey, he's up there. He's in almost 60 or early 60s. And he's starting to feel old. And all the young, all the young people are out there, you know, they're shiny faces. They're 20 years old. And all those young women, 20 years old. And his wife's the same age as he. And, you know, they start another round of, uh, uh, look. Let's put a benign word on that courtship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flandering courtship, you know, right. to, to remake with a different generation. Yeah. Hey, listen, if I'm going to get a wedding photo, Mussolini better be in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle. Now, that'll put the jinx. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With the mother in law over right. and over. I don't think he's yeah. looking very grumpy. <laughs> so, we've talked about these photographs, these telegrams. I mean, how did you get in contact with these primary sources? Well, I, I was brought her archive. It's one of those serendipity. I, you know, of course, mm-hmm. I'm interested in power, interested in all of this stuff. But um, her, her distant family, Miss Liliana, had died in 1989. But her, she left papers, you know, boxes of papers and so on. And you know, they mess um, New York apartments, even when they're big, like her relatives were. You know, it's, a, it's a mess to have papers. Right. <laughs> you know, relatives they didn't even like that much. She was a pretty tough bird. So. They, they were afraid, one of them was afraid to throw them away because she's a historian, an amateur historian, and understood the value of papers, especially since there were all these photographs of Mussolini and uh, other fascist uh, leaders, uh, you know, the Prince Umberto, the Queen with dedications. And so they approached me because I'm an Italian historian and said, what's going on here? Are they valuable? I said, let me know. Look. And when I opened up the wedding album, I saw this Mussolini right in the middle. This is uh, pretty interesting. And then I saw lots of photographs of the uh, fascist uh, Italian army with this Ceruzzi leading it, uh, fighting and quelling uh, against the Libyans to to turn Libya into a more secure colony. And that interested me. My goodness, I never seen photographs of this army on the move in the desert and, you know, getting these Arab sheikhs to submit surrounding these little villages and, and, and so on. This struck me. And then I saw her letters, all these packets of letters. And gosh, I've never really used that kind of personal letters. And then finally, these several volumes, looking at them in Latin, they're annulment proceedings. And wow, annulment proceedings, you might know, are secret. You know, you can't get at them. I mean, when the Kennedys get annulments of their marriages, I mean, not even the women who are being, <laughs> were getting their marriage annulled right. <laughs> about 
what was going on because you, you don't necessarily have access to these proceedings mm-hmm. designed to be secret and you know, private, intimate, and so on. So you know, this is pretty amazing stuff. I mean, usually like when you go to fascism, you think of politics, and it's like this facade of totalitarianism. You can't see what's going on. It's like, hmm, this is going to allow me to get inside. Once I identify this man whom I didn't recognize, you know, I did, this Teruzzi was not a household name. And when I went and asked, you know, some military uh, scholars who I thought would help me because they knew about the army, how to get into the army archives, which are hard to get into. Oh, they said, oh, that man, eh, disgusting. We called him the rutting bull of the empire you know, because he was such a libertine and just known for being a, you know, sex fiend, you know, carrying on whenever he had an opportunity to go to the colonies mm. in Italy too, but it was had to be more secret and less, you know, flamboyant. Mm-hmm. He was a big, you know, well-known fascist. So I said, oh, this is interesting. I want to write about her. That's why I said, oh, this is really interesting. This woman, amazing. This Liliana and so many photographs of her, gorgeous, beautiful outfits, singing. So pretty. Gorgeous. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, divine. She had the best photographers going in Vienna and in Milan. They're just beautiful in her outfits, which came from the best costumists at the Caramba uh, um, uh, at the um, at the Metropolitan, uh, excuse me, at La Scala Opera House. So I said, mm, this is, you know, American girl goes to Italy and falls in bad times. It was like Henry James novel falls in, you know, white girl, black man, you know, I mean, that, I mean, in the sense of sort of metaphorically, that's the way these stories are written. And I thought, Oh God, that's such a, that's a me too story, but it's not, that's not this story folks. Yeah. You know, it's much more complicated than that. (laughs) It's there, you know, me too. She is, Miss Me Too. She's amazing. Liliana, she gets the best divorce lawyers. She gets a lot of people on her side. Even as her mother said, everybody was against her, including the Pope. <laughs> Liliana wins. <laughs> you know, and then she doesn't win. But anyway. Yeah. So, but then what happened is I gradually, I found that he had another woman companion much later. He couldn't divorce her. He, the marriage, he was trying to dissolve it. And then I found this other woman, and she was touching. So it couldn't be any more about her and him because there was this other woman by whom he has a child, a little girl, 1938. And that story, oh, my God, all of a sudden I realized, here's another story. Here is this younger woman, similar in some ways to Liliana, Jewish also, big, same size almost as Liliana, <laughs> strong face. But she was born in Egypt, so a very different culture. Mm. Uh, Liliana's coming from Eastern Europe, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish. This woman's coming, Romanians who lived for a long time in uh, the Levant and then in Egypt. And she, you know, her parents had died and she'd come to Italy to be with some relatives. And she has you know, no money and wild and, you know, she's smitten by him. He's terribly smitten by her. Uh, again, free young woman, you know, needy, very needy. And so they begin a relationship, which is going to become more and more difficult once the fascists start putting in their race laws. And so I was able, um, by great good luck, to find what happened to her because there was not, this is just a common woman. I mean, just try to imagine, oh, pick a person out of the New York phone book, so to speak. And 
how do you find about them? They're just normal people. They're not registered or you can't figure out. I mean, you could go census and all of that. But I found a letter that she wrote to Mussolini in, because I was looking at his archive, said from Yvette. She was in a concentration camp. This is no. a, oh my God. How the hell did she get in a concentration camp? That, well, the letter says, four page letter, he, Teruzzi, her husband, her, her, had put her there because she was causing trouble. Now, what trouble was she causing? She wouldn't let him adopt the child. And that child, first of all, he really couldn't adopt. It was illegal for him to adopt because he had to get his real wife, who was in the United States, permission. That meant that that little girl was Jewish. Okay, So she is saying, don't do it, don't do it. You can't do it, causing trouble. So he has her sent to a concentration camp in Sicily, uh, 1941. just as the Germans are pressing the Italians to get serious about the final solution. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows he has a Jewish consort. He, some people could get away with it. Some said that Himmler, for example, had a Jewish mistress. I don't know about what, you know, what that is about, but he, he was dutiful fascist. And he be, Mussolini was saying, get rid of her, get rid of her. So he gets rid of her by having her sent to a concentration camp for being a troublemaker. Troublemaker means scandal, mongering, mm-hmm. which what they called in Italy, there was a law that was put in women of dubious morality. <laughs> and that meant usually they're, you know, like gypsy fortune tellers, yes. Yeah. <laughs> troublemakers, uh, <laughs> the wide, uh, the English wives of diplomats who were gossips, uh, prostitutes could be women of dubious morality, mm. uh, women pressing men to recognize abandoned children, and so on. And and that then got me going, trying to figure out who she was, what happened to her, because the trail was so thin. And I found quite a bit by finally finding her granddaughter who lived in Naples and she helped me a, a great deal. A woman who's so cool. 50, uh, a, a lovely woman who never knew the grandfather and except that he was a general, yeah. <laughs> a general never got anything indeed quite the contrary by having that relationship. And you know, gradually with, you know, very little piece together this, this woman and what happened to her. Uh, in the course of this marriage, uh, so not marriage, but uh, companionship, if you mm. want, this big fascist uh, who couldn't be perfect with that kind of relationship, which mm-hmm. was uh, made life difficult for him, but also you can imagine for, for his companion and for the child, who you know would in the end face all of the the in the exit from these fascists was very bad in 1945. Mm-hmm. They're pursued by the Allies and the resistors. They're fleeing towards Switzerland, trying to join and camouflage themselves amongst German troops. And there were shootouts in the end. Mm. That's you know, what happened with him, with his wife and his child present. So you can imagine. I mean, this was exactly um, the breakup story that 2020 needed. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, I mean. A story for 2020. Yeah. <laughs> it really, really is. Um, 
And we want, I mean, we want listeners to know where to find how, where can they get this book? Where can they find this book? Are they getting it from a store? Is it on Audible? Where can they find more about you and the other things you've written? Because you have more books coming out. Mm -hmm. You have other books that you put out. I mean, it's fascinating. Your, your list, man. Yeah. It's amazing. (laughs) I invite all of you to go to my name, Victor. Victoria de Gracia <laughs> with Victoria de Gracia. Like of Grace de Gracia yeah. website. You can look. Very academic website, folks. So, but it's got beautiful pictures on it. And it tells you what I'm teaching and what I'm doing and about the book. The book, go to your bookstore. And I know probably you don't know what your local bookstore <laughs> is. That's a good way to go. Clearly, bookstores are very needy right now. Mm-hmm. I support my local one. And you can go to big old monopoly finance capitalism, Amazon. Go there to we go. <laughs> and press the button, buy the book. It's uh, you can get it in Kindle too. Buy the book because it's got beautiful pictures be- amongst <laughs> and a story that's you know bodice ripping, not quite yeah. <laughs> black shirt ripping. And if you like it, put a note up. <laughs> I'm bad about that. Not getting. You know, I have a daughter, probably your age. Taking your friends to buy it you know, right on Amazon, but I mean, it's hard to organize that kind of yeah. thing. Do <laughs> pressure on you, but I, I'm you know, very excited for your, shall we call it, generation cohort to read it. To, and, and so it's a it's a sad story. Uh, it does teach you. I regard it as a kind. Of, a woman's introduction to fascism. We will know what fascism is and whether we're living through fascism today. (laughs) Debatable, but an important question. And that, I think that's why I wanted it to get out, done and out. And this story clearly was touched me, but also how much it told about how fascism works, you know, Mm -hmm. full of passion and horrible. (laughs) So it's a, you know, it's a way of looking at the world. Uh, it's it's not a pe- oddly, it's not a pessimistic story. I mean, and people live, yeah, <laughs> and uh, they make their lives. Uh, and uh, we end up in the Naples of Ferrante, Elena Ferrante. That's where his granddaughter lives, and mm-hmm. you know, she lives part of of that. You know, this, this history keeps going on. People's children move on and the world yeah Yeah, it does and i'm so grateful for this book because it really does shed a light on this huge political movement through the eyes of i mean some regular people who are actually living through it so thank you for this book i can't wait for all of our listeners to go out and buy it um Sure. Uh, and thank you, Victoria, for coming on the show. We were so happy to have you. Um, so thank you again. Yeah, and I mean, cheers to you. Cheers to you. Cheers, cheers to, to you book. and your book. It's cheers hard enough to, to write a book. Cheers to her story. <laughs> thank Long you. Yeah. Ongoing. Forever. Yes. <laughs> we will try. I, thank you for being a woman making history. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. All we do is talk about cool women. You're doing it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're writing the sources that oh, that's what we all aspire to be cool yeah. women. Yeah. <laughs> it's a while. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little while. Yeah. <laughs> well, we hope you have a happy holidays. We've yeah. so loved talking to you. You're so knowledgeable and incredible and 
thank you for sharing it with us and with our listeners. Mm -hmm. And we just can't wait for everybody to go out and buy this for all their friends for the winter holidays. Okay. Perfect. Here's to, no, here's to imperfect fascist. May, yes. they, <laughs> may, may, may they not last. Yes, exactly. <laughs> may they not last. That's a kind way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye